Welcome to New Creation, a home for the creative community of Los Angeles. For more information, visit our website at newcreationla.com. And now, the sermon. Well done. I, uh, those are heavy words to read, but um, well done. Well, hey, New Creation, it's great to be with you today. And I know you're in a series on Revelation. Revelation pulls the curtain back on an unseen cosmic spiritual battle between God and his people and the devil and his forces. And that devil and his forces attack God's people, often in the form of outright persecution. And that was the context of the first century. Many of the Christians um, suffered, uh, including the apostles, right? Ten of them died as martyrs. John, the author of Revelation, is on the island of Patmos, um, banished there because of his faith. And, uh, and that persecution continues today. Uh, there was a Newsweek article back in January of 2018 looking at the persecution of Christians from 2015 to 2017, this time period. And, uh, and there was a lot. Uh, it looked at China, Egypt, Eritrea, India, Iran, Iraq, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Syria, Turkey. That was a lot of persecution. And the article said, disturbingly, that Christian persecution and genocide is worse now than, quote, any time in history. Uh, this is actually the peak of Christian persecution. That cosmic battle that Revelation pictures is a reality to this day that we, God's people, are attacked. Well, that's the context where John wrote the book of Revelation, and I think it's helpful for us to keep that in mind as we look at this book and as we consider our passage today, that please try to listen as if you were the persecuted church in China or in Saudi Arabia. Listen as if you were disowned by your family or you've been sent to prison. So today we're looking at the seven trumpets, trumpets of wrath. This goes from actually Revelation uh, 8 through 11, but I didn't want Kendall to read all those chapters. Uh, it's a lot that we've already looked at. And there is a lot of judgment a lot of destruction, a lot of heavy stuff. It's hard to understand. And honestly, a lot of it is hard to accept. But before we begin, I first want to say um, one key to, I think, understanding the seven trumpets is something that perhaps the Jewish Christians would have, wouldn't have had to have had explained to them. They would have understood, they would have recognized that the story of the trumpets echoes the story of the Exodus when Moses brought out the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. I want to point out three quick parallels. First, if you noticed, the, uh, the trumpets brought hail and fire, blood, bitter water, darkness, and locusts. I don't know if that sounds familiar at all, but those are the very things that were included in the plagues of Egypt. And the early Jewish Christians, I think they would have recognized that the trumpets in Revelation echo, reflect the plagues of Egypt. 
And like the plagues of Egypt, these trumpets are then understood as God's judgment on his enemies. The second thing we'll notice is that these trumpets came as a response to the prayers of God's people. I had to edit down the scripture reading, so we didn't look at the first part of chapter 8. But in the, in the first part, there's a scene of an angel. He has a censer burning incense. And that, along with the prayers of God's people, rise as a sweet aroma to God. And the angel then takes some fire, puts it in the censer, and he hurls it to earth. And there's thunder and lightning and an earthquake. And then come these seven trumpets. And it's a picture of God using the prayers of his people and then responding in a way that shakes the earth, literally shakes the earth. And what are these prayers? God obviously hears all of our prayers. But in this context, I think these are the prayers of God's people crying out for deliverance, crying out for justice. A few chapters ago in uh, Revelation 6, after the fifth seal, we see the prayers of the martyrs crying out from under the altar. Here you have it on the screen. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood? Right? The, the prayer, the martyrs are crying out this prayer. And that's exactly what we see in the Exodus story. Exodus 2, the Israel's, Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And God heard their groaning. Exodus 3, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people and have heard their cry. God heard the cries and the prayers. And then he sent Moses and the plagues. That's what we have here. The trumpets are a response to the cries of his people. The third thing, the third parallel we have uh, with the Exodus story is that these 10 plagues of Egypt were sent one by one so that Pharaoh might relent and let God's people go and worship in the desert. Uh, these were displays of God's power, displays of God's reality. And as such, they were opportunities for Pharaoh to acknowledge the God of the Israelites, to acknowledge his power, to stop resisting to repent. You see, there's mercy woven into the judgment because the judgment didn't come all at once. Instead, Pharaoh was given numerous opportunities to relent, to let the Israelites go, to not suffer all of God's judgment. But throughout the plagues and, and as we'll see with the trumpets, there is a hardening of the hearts, a refusal to repent. That's what we see after the sixth trumpet, uh, chapter 9, verse 20, Revelation. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands, or, nor give up worshiping demons and idols, nor did they repent of their murderers or sorceries or sexual immorality or thefts. See, the, the plagues of Egypt and the trumpets of a revelation were an invitation to repent. Don't have to suffer the fullness of God's wrath. And yet God's enemy do not repent. Their hearts remain hard. Now the early Christians, I think they would have recognized these parallels of the, 
the wrath with the story of Exodus, and they would have felt to a people who are now suffering and have an enemy and are being persecuted, that this is a message of deliverance, right? That's the Exodus story. This is a message of, of, of hope of one day our enemies will be defeated and we will be delivered. This is, this is a message of hope. This is, if you think about it, like in the movie world, this is like every superhero story, right? <laughs> it's a universal story. We are, we're, we're being oppressed by a powerful enemy uh, who is hurting us and harming us. And we feel this injustice and we want someone to overcome this oppressor. And finally, there's a hero with enough power and enough courage to fight the enemy. And we are delivered and we celebrate that. That is revelation. That is these, this story. It's, and it's not just a movie. It's not just a fantasy. There is a superhero. And there will be a deliverance, a rescue. And to persecuted Christians in North Korea or in the first century, right, this was comfort. This was hope. This was good news. Deliverance is assured us. So what does this mean? What does it mean for us? I mean, Revelation, these are very fantastical images and language and things. So how does it relate to us? I would like to spend some time suggesting this frames our story. See, there are a lot of different ways to tell our spiritual story, right? That we were guilty, guilty sinners who have been forgiven, declared righteous. Or there's a story of a, we were alienated from God, separated from God. We were enemies of God, but now we are reconciled to God. We are adopted into his family. For Israel, the story was, God has brought you out of slavery. The, the, throughout the Old Testament, the way God refers to himself is, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And that story was remembered and celebrated every year at the Passover. It was meant to be their defining story. This is who God is in your story, O Israel, the God who brought you out of Eden. And we want to say that is our story as well, that we too have an enemy. We too are attacked. We are oppressed. We are in a cosmic war. But God defeats our enemy and God delivers us. You see, this story, Exodus story, the story of uh, uh, here, Revelation 8 through 11, this story helps us make sense of our reality. This story helps us have appropriate expectation. This is our story because God's people have always had enemies. God's people have always been persecuted. Hebrews 11, the great chapter of the patriarchs of faith, describe how the heroes of faith were tortured, tortured, mocked, flogged, imprisoned, stoned, killed. 
First Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you, you, you endure as though something strange were happening to you. He's saying, though we get to enjoy religious freedom here in America and we celebrate that, that's a good thing. But the Bible says persecution is not strange. No, persecution, that is normal Christianity. That is what we've seen throughout church history. And in the context of a spiritual war, right, that makes sense. All right, that makes sense that we would expect that. We would understand that. Revelation pulls the curtain back on an unseen spiritual cosmic battle. And in that world, persecution, struggle, trials, that makes sense because we're at war. And then the message of deliverance and hope, that is, right? That's the good news in this story. A few years ago, there was an article in the New York Times um, talking, uh, looking at the study. Researchers were looking at what makes kids resilient. And I think, you know, just for ourselves in this 2020, 2021, this, these last, this last year, I think it's a great question. What helps some people be resilient to all the stress and trauma and challenges of difficult times? Well, they did this assessment back in 2001. And then just a couple months later came 9-11. And so they didn't have to hypothesize. They had actual data of, of as they looked at all these very various factors, what was the outcome as they saw these kids endure a real national trauma? And the article said this, quote, the single most important thing you can do for your family may be the simplest of all. Develop a strong family narrative. I was a little puzzled. I mean, did that like why would that <laughs> cause someone to be resilient, right? Because it's saying, hey, tell the story of how mom and dad met and who the grandparents were and all the aunties and the uncles and like tell the family story, which is all nice. But why would that make a child more resilient? And the article is saying that kids who know their family history, their family story, have a more grounded sense of identity and a deeper sense of belonging. That instead of just seeing themselves as an isolated individual, they are part of something bigger. It's like saying, you are a Jedi. <laughs> you are a Gryffindor, right? It says you're part of something big and grand and it's not just you. And that's what we need. We need a family story that helps us recognize we are part of something bigger. We are so part of something bigger than ourselves. We are part of something that spans the history of God and his people. We are part of a story that defines the storyline of the cosmos. We are the people of God engaged in an age-old cosmic war that's reframing our story now for some of us this story may not feel quite so distant uh i remember as a kid 
seeing these old Korean movies of how Korean Christians were persecuted under Japanese rule. And uh, I, I remember just thinking, you know, my dad is not that far away from that generation of Christians. And I could like picture my dad, you know, kind of, because he was a pretty zealous guy, just, you know, I'll die for Jesus kind of thing. And it gets even closer. My, my wife's grandparents actually were Christians during that time of persecution um, in Korea. But my guess is that for a lot of us, we're saying, we would probably say, you know, that's, it's sad and it's true and it's there, but it's just, it's just not my story. It's not my experience. That's, I grew up in America where we've enjoyed religious freedom and we've never been persecuted here and it doesn't relate to us. But I want to say, I think Revelation is inviting you to change your narrative. It's inviting you to see your life as part of this story and in so doing to reinterpret your reality. Because this, this is telling us, here is the story of God's people. This is what is actually true. He's not trying to convince you of something like, let's just make believe. No, this is actually true. Whether we recognize it or not, it's true. Revelation is turning the light on to help us see the unseen cosmic spiritual battle. And when we can see that reality and reframe our story, then the plagues of Egypt, the trumpets of Revelation, these speak hope to a people who have been persecuted by the enemy of God, who have suffered, who have cried out, for deliverance. I want to suggest three ways that this might change our perspective, reframing the story, how it would change our perspective. First, I think we would more quickly recognize the battle for ourselves, right? We would see that following Jesus has a lot of costs. No need to explain, but LA is not a Christian-friendly world. <laughs> I'm sure we felt that, right? In direct and indirect ways, this pressure to hide your faith, hide your views. Maybe you've lost personal or professional opportunities because of your faith. There is a cost. But even perhaps more profoundly, there, is, there, is, there are problems not just from the outside, but from within that we, are, we, have, we struggle with so many temptations. I mean, this year, especially the last 12 months, all the worry and fear and anxiety that just have squeezed our souls. And then, of course, there's just greed and lust and compromise and complacency and fighting and division and jealousy and gossip and on and on, right? We have an enemy who schemes and tempts and wants nothing more than to pull you away from God and destroy your faith. We're at war. We're in a battle. Maybe we would recognize that. And if we did, then I think it would behoove us. Like we, we would recognize the passages that urge us to be vigilant, to be prepared, to, to be alert, to recognize the enemy when he attacks. 
And one lesson we can have from this passage in Revelation is we can pray. We pray. We cry out to the one who protects us, who delivers us. Indeed, that is how Jesus taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. That's the framing of the story. That's the perspective. There is an evil one from whom we need deliverance. And so we pray for deliverance. The second way I think it can change our perspective is we recognize the battle for others. As I mentioned, we have brothers and sisters around the world. I won't read the list of countries uh, where this is not metaphorical, right? This is not, let's try to use our imagination. No, this is very real for them. There is widespread persecution, quote, worse than any other time in history. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 13, excuse me, says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Hebrews 10, sometimes you are publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. We remember our persecuted brothers and sisters. We identify with them. We stand side by side with them because it's saying, this is our family. <laughs> we're part of one body. We're connected. These are our brothers. These are our sisters. We care for our family. The third change in perspective is that we recognize God's wrath and his love. Now, the, the trumpets of wrath and all the bowls of wrath, seals of wrath, all this wrath stuff in Revelation is not easy. It's not easy to talk about. It's not easy to accept. It's not easy to hear. I think some of us, maybe we hear echoes of hellfire and brimstone preachers that honestly are very offensive, very judgmental. And maybe, maybe this is an objection you might have. One of the struggles you have with it, the God of the Bible is a God of wrath and judgment because, well, it is hard to accept and it's hard to understand. But let's put it in this frame, in this story. See the pictures of God's wrath in the context of a cosmic spiritual battle with an enemy who is seeking to destroy the people of God. And in that context, this is a story of God fighting for his people. This is a picture of God attacking the enemy who is, who is attacking God's people. I see this in Jesus. Jesus in Mark 9 says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it will be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Like, look, there is a heart here. What is the heart of Jesus? The heart of God. He's saying, if you mess with any of my little ones, it, you cause them to stumble. You so much as lay a finger one of my precious children, you will deal with me. You will deal. And I'm telling you now, paraphrase, it would be better for you to just die quickly than for you to face me in my anger. 
for what you have done to my precious child, right? What we see is a heart of a father. And I get that. I get that. Hey, you know, forget all this Pastor Paul or Pastor whomever. You mess with my family. You hurt my children. You hurt my wife. Not that I'm that scary, but you, <laughs> you, will, you will have to deal with my anger, right? Because you see, that anger is a function of my love. I think uh, earlier, you know, uh, when all the racial injustice issues were coming up, George Floyd and, and the many others, or even as we were praying earlier today, and when you think about sex trafficking, like we, there's something in us that, that cries out that says, this is wrong. No, no, we, it, it stirs our anger in a good and godly way. Anger is not opposed to love. Anger is a function of love. And that's what we see in Revelation. God's wrath is a function of his love. It is his settled opposition to anything that would harm or destroy those whom he loves. It is a picture showing that our God is emotionally attached. He is emotionally involved. God is emotionally involved. He is not objective and distant and dispassionate. No, he, he is moved when he sees his people assaulted. It's not okay. His anger is provoked because he cares. He, we are precious to him. What do the trumpets mean? It reframes our story, changes our perspective. But I want to move on because the passage itself answers the question of what do the trumpets mean? Between the sixth and seventh trumpet, there's a scene with these two witnesses. Again, we didn't have time to read everything, but it's there. You can take a look if you'd like. These two witnesses are modeled after Moses and Elijah because these witnesses have the power to turn water into blood, have power to call down plagues like Moses, and have power to hold back rain and consume enemies in fire like Elijah. These two figures are understood to be the witness of the church. They are God's representative to the world, and they are wearing sackcloth. They are grieving the wickedness of the world. There's mourning and repent and penitence. They are grieving the wickedness of the world. They are warning of coming judgment, and they are calling people to repent. And they are doing this in power, like Moses and Elijah. They proclaim it in power. But 42 months later, a beast rises up and kills the two witnesses. And this represents persecution against the church, saying that the church is going to be so attacked that it may look like it's even snuffed out. Many Christians will die. But then after three and a half days, the witness, these two witnesses are raised from the dead and the watching world, it says, will be afraid and they will give glory to God. 
the picture is that the church is called to be God's witness. We grieve the wickedness of the world. We, we warn of coming judgment. We call people to repentance and faith in Jesus. And we do this even to the point of death. And in this witness, God will empower us in our sufferings. God will strengthen us for the work. What does this mean? It means though we're in a cosmic battle, we do not run and hide. We do not try to just stay safe, build up our defenses. The picture of the trumpets is a picture that we are called to go forward into this cosmic battle on the offensive as God's witnesses. And that's a similar picture. Again, I see this echoed with Jesus. Again, in Matthew 10, I'm going to paraphrase. Jesus tells his disciples, essentially, hey, I'm going to send you into a dangerous world. You are like sheep among wolves. They want to devour you. They want to arrest you, flog you. They will hate you. Be careful. Be careful. This is so dangerous. But then Jesus says, but you are called as my witnesses. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. God loves you. You are valuable to him. So be faithful in your witness, even to the point of death. New creation. We want to see people come to know Jesus. We want to continue in the fields that we're in to impact our broader culture. We have a mission. We have a vision. We are being called even in the midst of a cosmic battle. Uh, there's a pastor here in the LA area, Michael Gregory. I don't know if you've had the chance to meet him, but he was a missionary in China for about eight years. Has a good friend. Um, his name's. we're going to call him Min. It's not his real name, but we'll call him Min. Uh, Min is in his 30s. He has three kids. And Michael was telling me how Min was telling him how uh, the government's cracking down. Christians are disappearing they are going to, they call them black prisons. Min's father was also a pastor and uh, had been mistreated in prison for five years. After which, um, shortly after he had been released, though he, he died. But Min is not deterred, uh, partly because of the faithfulness of his father's example and the fruitfulness that he saw through that ministry. Min is himself in full-time ministry and he is fully aware of the danger. I mean, it's up close and personal for him, right? He knows. And yet he continues to gather for worship, continues to equip and mobilize Christian believers to go to unreached people groups in China. That's the picture. That's the picture. In a cosmic battle, we are still called to be his witnesses. That's what the trumpets mean for us. Just one more piece to the family story, the family narrative, and that is we need to remember 
that we were once on the other side, right? That we were once God's enemies and objects of his wrath, that we defied his authority. We disobeyed his commands. We dishonored him as we honored ourselves. But God, but God, when we, and though we deserved his wrath, but God forgave us. He rescued us. He, he adopted us into his family. He made us his own. And that means that in the midst of all this judgment that we see in Revelation, all the wrath that is awaiting them, we have humility. We have compassion because we understand we are no better we needed grace. That grace is, and that grace is still extended to the enemies of God. As we had once been the enemies of God and received that same grace, we are no different. We, we have a posture of humility, even compassion, because this story is our own. We were once the enemies of God. And all that wrath, all that judgment, all these bowls and seals and trumpets throughout Revelation, all that judgment was poured on Jesus. All of it poured on Jesus, that he was our substitute, our scapegoat, our, our whipping boy, the lamb. He was the lamb that was slain. That's the picture, right? He was the lamb that when he took it all, there is no wrath left for us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what we call the good news. This is the great story that though we are all sinful, we all fall short, that God, God offers us forgiveness, amnesty. We can have uh, love, acceptance, not because we were good enough, <laughs> but because of Jesus. We have a rescuer. We have a substitute. We have a redeemer. If you are a follower of Jesus, we are reminded today that we are in a cosmic battle with a real enemy who attacks. And often it takes the form of real persecution. And yet we are called to be witnesses in this cosmic dangerous battle. But we see Jesus leading the way. We see Jesus suffering assaults, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, even to the point of death. You see, we see Jesus as the head of this family, as the head of this family story. There, it is, there he is. He is the, the picture of the story that we are all a part of. And one day, one day he will come with trumpet sounds and he will conquer our enemy once and for all. And he will establish his rule and reign secured, fully consummated. And God's people will be fully and finally delivered. And we will celebrate that victory through the end of time. This is what the trumpets mean for us. Let's pray.
One day, Lord. One day. Oh, soon and very soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come. One day. We, today, we recognize the battle that continues. And we pray, Lord, deliver us. Rescue us. I'm sure there are people here today who, man, the battle feels so close. The heat, the attacks, the temptations, the struggles. Lord, we cry out for deliverance. We cry out to the one who loves us, who is moved on our behalf. Oh, Lord, we also have comfort and hope that deliverance is on its way. One day, soon and very soon, it shall be so. And we shall sing and celebrate when you come to fully consummate your kingdom. We have comfort. We have hope. Lord, give us the strength to be faithful to the end, even as your witnesses in this dangerous battlefield. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this sermon and encourage you to become a regular member of our online community. To find out more about the church, visit our website at newcreationla.com.